Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means taking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem mm. with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore here, and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. We have another interview for you today. Uh, they're coming thick and fast at the moment, which is exciting. And this is with Doug Urbanski. Now, he is Gary Oldman's business partner, the famous actor of The Darkest Hour and Neil by Mouth, many great films. Uh, and Doug and Gary have been business partners for more than 30 years, and we sort of go really into that. Uh, in the podcast a bit towards the end. He runs a talent management firm called DMG. Um, he's a famous producer. He produced Darkest Hour, The Social Network, and other very popular films like Nil by Mouth, for which he won a British Academy Award. Um, he was huge in the 80s in theatre and Broadway in London. And this is a fantastic interview. He doesn't answer a lot of my questions directly, but I think he answers them better. This is the first live interview he's done for two and a half years. So I think it's a real privilege that we could have the interview with Doug. Also, quite amazingly, he was scheduled to be on the plane that went down over Lockerbie, and obviously everyone died on that crash. Um, and a very last minute thing meant he wasn't on that plane. And I think you can see after that how his life changed and um, you know, how he really views life differently. Uh, he's got, we distilled probably six or seven things that make up, in his view, really successful people. Five of them begin with C. I also pitched him at the end for a film. Um, and I didn't even plan to. It's just I've had this idea for a film for a few years. And I thought, you know what? Let's give it a go. So that was quite fun as well. So here we go. The interview with Doug Abansky. Well, first off, I want to thank you for um, spending your time with me. I'm very grateful. Um, My pleasure. Thank you. And, and you asked me a couple of minutes ago, you know, why you? Uh, and um, I think what's allured me to you is your, I feel, and, and you can correct me at any time, Doug, if I get any of this wrong, but from a distance, I feel like you're a multidisciplinarian. I feel like you haven't boxed yourself in or, uh, um, uh, you know, typecast yourself. You can do lots of different things. And um, I'm really intrigued by that. Um, because I think that um, someone who has the confidence to do that, um, I admire. Uh, do you see yourself uh, you, as... You, you, you put, put out there the key word. word. You know something? something. Um, thank you for, for your observation. You know, I, I like to believe that everybody has in them two or three careers, maybe four. I'm working on four or five right now. I don't seem to have mastered anything. <laughs> but the, the, and, and Sir Peter Ustinov, a name you probably don't know, was a very good friend of mine, by the way. And do you know who that is? Yes, yes. My parents were very thought he was great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I feel very old now. But Peter, Sir Peter Yusuf was a friend of mine. He was one of these people that did a thousand things. But you, you use the word confidence. And if you've heard of these genetic disorders where people are, where people have no, they, they're missing the part of themselves that has fear right. and you, or their ability to have humor. You've heard of these terrible disorders. Um, I think that the, that, Confidence is probably look if exercise is the top 100 supplements before you take any pills, then confidence is probably the top 100 
things that help you get from A to B. However, you know, you, you, you can't leave your critically engaged brain out of the confidence equation because I, every single, I live in the saddest town on earth. Everyone wants to be an actor. Everyone wants to be a producer or a director or screenwriter. And a lot of people, I see a lot of people that have confidence but have no, no talent to back it up. Oh, confidence is a weird thing, but you've got to engage your, your critically uh, engaged brain. And there's another part of confidence, which is I don't know what it is about the way I think. I like how learning how things work. So I sit out there in a West End musical or a magic show in Las Vegas, and I say, how did they do that? I'm Because I'm a production guy, I like to know how they do that. Same thing about many of these other things. How do they do that? How does... How does a radio host do that? How does somebody do that? And I think once you you how do they make the perfect martini? How do they make the perfect Cobb salad? Howard Hughes once ordered like thirty Cobb salads at his bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and he the, the waiters came by and they found him taking these salads apart so we could learn what the secret was to the Beverly Hills Hotel hmm. McCarthy salad. So confidence is a very key thing. I, I think I think you put your finger right on it. I, if, if you ask me, what would I be afraid of losing? sense of smell or taste or sight or all these, these these weird existential questions. I would say I would be afraid of losing confidence and I would be afraid of losing the thing that feeds off of confidence from it, which is that sense of knowing what to do next. And that's a really great gift, great intuitive gift. It, it rarely applies to horse racing or lottery tickets, by the way, but it applies to so many of our, our disciplines that we that we encounter in our daily life. I've really gone afield from, from I interrupt, I'm a great interrupter, so I interrupted you, gone very far afield. You were saying something? Yeah, no, that's, hey, look, this is all about you and not me, Doug, and I. Um, that's absolutely fine. Feel free to go on whatever tangent you want. I think I am following what you're saying, and if I could maybe say some things back to you and dig a little bit more. So are you saying you're, you've become skilled in many disciplines because you don't fear moving into a new discipline? That, I think that's right. I, I mean, I'm not going to take up skiing, by the way, at my age. Um, there's certain disciplines that are just never going to appeal to me. But I, I've glided through things that have always been of interest to me. I've always been interested in, in producing. I think I've produced... Long before I produced motion pictures and Broadway shows, I was, uh, I had, at the time I was four years old, I think my parents bought me a puppet theater and I was putting on shows. My mother had a scheme in her head that when I was about 11 or 12, that we would take this, maybe 10 or something, we would take this traveling puppet theater and put on these puppet shows at, at, at hospitals for sick children. And I think that the, that the producer gene in me was sort of as there as long as I can remember. As you know, I produced my first off-Broadway show when I was still in college, and I mm. then started producing it, produced the first play of Steppenwolf ever. Um, it was all kind of accidental. But if I may even interrupt myself for a little story, uh, I was studying acting at NYU, which in the, in the mid-'70s had the greatest faculty of acting teachers ever assembled in the history of the world. So you had Lee Strasberg, you had Stella Adler, you had Harold Corman. Now, Stella Adler was the only one who had ever sat down with Stanislavski and said, please, Mr. Stanislavski, explain this thing to us. Because he had a belief that you could teach this thing called acting to accommodate modern playwriting. Uh, 
Stanislavski said, believed that you would teach someone to do it the way you could teach, you could make, have someone make the perfect martini. You can actually break this down into a discipline that can be taught. Now, you can't teach talent, but you can teach a lot else. You and I could probably learn to play really great tennis if we had the discipline of the teacher, and we, we learned to do a lot of things. So I was studying acting at NYU, and I got a chance to understudy an actor named Tom Hulse, so who you remember from the film of Amadeus, in a play of Julius Caesar at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. It was being directed by a man named Frank Dunlop, who founded the Young Vic uh, just across the other side of the river from the Savoy. And I remember acting in this play at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Richard, young Richard Dreyfus was in it. He was playing Cassius. No one had even heard of him then. Um, and it was really standing backstage in the wings that I said, I don't want to do this. I think that my heart lies in producing, even though I was you know, 17 or 18, whatever age was. And one thing led to another, talking to another well-known actor, and he had a play that he wanted someone to produce. And that all happened in that same time frame. And I, and I thus became a producer and learned what that involved and have not stopped doing it one way or another, even though I've had a successful career on the radio um, and there's a lot of reasons I don't do it anymore. But um, I have, I, if you came to my house, the whole thing is, is produced. If I was cooking dinner for you and 20 other people or 30 people, and I do cook dinners for people like that, um, it's, it's, I want my guests to feel the whole production. And it's usually very, very subtle. But that's, I don't know. I'm, again, I've not answered your question. Uh, it's okay. I think, I think you are. You don't, and by the way, you don't have to answer my question. You can ask, answer whatever question you want. But I tell you, I'm still transfixed by some things I've picked out which are linked to the question. So the first thing is, it strikes to me that you're curious and so you will allow yourself to go and explore the things you're curious about and that you don't let the fear of going into a new area put you off and the disciplines that you do go into are related to what you do, like radio, acting, producing mm -hmm. theatre. So you can almost carry, if, if you've done acting, you can carry that into production maybe, you can carry, you know, theatre into radio. Would that be a fair comment? Well, you get, you, 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 have, you have a little bit, you have a psychic gift, a little psychic <laughs> gift, did anyone ever say that to you? Um, the, the thing about, I was talking to my wife about this only on Saturday night, the idea that people are incurious or, or something I call lazy brain. It, it, I think it's the most infuriating things to encounter. You can't do it if you want to be a good actor. You can't do it if you want to be a good writer. You can't do it if you want to be a good anything. You can't allow lazy brain to take over. Mm. Um, oh my God, if I say anything to, to my sons, or it, 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 don't, and, and if you actually distill most of the really good college courses on earth to their essence, what they're essentially saying is get rid of lazy brain. That's really if you distilled everything down to it. So, yeah, you have to have people who are not curious, who settle. I think that's a word that, that Gary Oldman and I use in our shorthand with each other to describe certain other people we encounter. We'll say he's a settler or she's a settler, and we don't mean it in a flattering way. Yeah, curiosity is the is the main thing. I We were shooting last year year and a half ago, we were shooting this film, Darkest Hour, and I was living in London and, and various other parts of the UK making this movie. And uh, I remember when, before we broke on the Christmas break in 2016, we were taking two weeks off, and I was thinking about how we were going to market this. And there were a lot of marketing puzzlements and questions back at that time. 
and I was just compelled in my little office over at Ealing, uh, I was just compelled to go write a long memo to all the other producers and marketing division of the studio and all uh, that went into uh, an analysis of what I called the values crowd. I thought the values crowd were going to be our great customers. And it's something that you almost have to spoon feed, especially to Brits who have an idea of America. They see America, they see the right wing, the religious right, and they think, oh my goodness, that's a very scary, loud, big group. They're not that scary, they're not that big, and they're not, they're a little bit loud, they're pretty offensive and horrible. But I was eager to shatter amongst my colleagues this idea that you had only one type of ticket buyer, which was a like-minded ticket buyer to many of the people involved in the motion picture, almost all of whom have a, a strongly liberal, politically liberal leaning. And I wrote this long memo about what I called the values crowd. And the values crowd, once you change those words, meant that it was a much bigger umbrella because there were lots of people who were much more like lots of us, even though they may consider themselves having right-leaning or left-leaning politics. The values crowd, once you start to understand them and talk about them, identify them, they're much more fascinating. They're much more interesting. They're, they're much they're much less scary. They're our neighbors. They're you. They're us. Um, and I had seen in the pre in the election that had happened here, just uh, when we began shooting. Brexit had just happened, just prior to our shooting. I had seen in the election that the values crowd was sort of fascinating. They were kind of predictable, and they gave me enormous hope about. <laughs> first off, they gave me enormous hope. That I was identifying a big pocket of potential customers. It was my first line of work. We made great hope about the world. Now, so where does that thinking about this idea of something called the values crowd comes from? Is this something I'm obsessed with? It is not. It is something I think about daily. It is not. It comes from being curious. You're sitting on a film set and you're thinking, okay, eventually we're going to be done shooting this. Eventually we're going to score this and cut it and it's going to be a finished movie. And hopefully we think a good movie. What are we going to do to, to speak to? each and every potential customer we have. And that was where I came up with the idea that the values crowd was something that people in the movie business involved in our movie, it's a major studio, needed to start having as a dialogue amongst themselves, which is what is this thing called the values crowd? Because instead of pigeonholing people in these tiny little groups, it was much bigger. And my, my only point in giving you this little sermon, Hey, yeah, like I said, I'm just, I'm sitting here uh, listening, fascinated. So if you <laughs> well, could define for us the values crowd concept, what is it? The values crowd, and this is not an important thing. I'm only using this as an example about being curious and, and you know, not having lazy brain about what your, what your work is. The, the values crowd, to me, it was, it was the, what America, the, the, the left call in a derogatory way, the flyover country which I have flown over a lot and we'll be doing again on Saturday, um, the flyover country told us amazing things, especially in the last presidential election. For example, I'll give you a great example. There was this really creepy guy running called Ted Cruz. And I, I, I really did a deep dive into who this guy was and what he was about. I want to know. I'm curious about all this stuff. And I didn't really, 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 really did not care for much about this guy. He was, he was, in my view, part of the ugliest stripe of the religious right, which is a very small group, but people think it's a very huge group in this country. And what I found interesting was that Ted Cruz lost the primary 
in the state of Indiana, which we tend to think of as a very Bible-belty religious state, religious rights state, and it is. And I thought this is really fascinating because one of the big things that Mr. Cruz was on about was he he just had an obsession against gay marriage and I think against gay people in general. And, um, you know, he's just worrisome on every level, this character. What I found fascinating was that religious right states were abandoning these sort of religious right characters. And indeed, all the religious right leaders and ministers, like Falwell Jr. and these other characters, were abandoning these traditionally religious right characters, which said to me something that no one had talked about, which was, wow, the religious right would have you believe that the greatest threat on earth might be the fact that your next door neighbor might be gay or a gay couple might move in next door to you. But what we had learned is that people were not concerned about that in the slightest. The religious right had stopped thinking about gay people as something other or different. Why? Well, because clearly everybody knew somebody who was gay, a neighbor, a cousin, a brother, uh, a sister, everybody. And so suddenly the stigma of that, that the religious right used to cling to, was gone. The, 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 the voters said, we don't care about that anymore, Mr. Cruz. Goodbye. Go home. We don't care. And I thought, wow, the values crowd, okay, they, they have their Bibles. They like their Bibles. They like their guns. They like their... They raise their kids with pretty good values. The, the boys probably play football, you know, when they're in high school, many of them. Um, and but the values crowd was much more like the rest of us. They were much more uh, open. And, and how this was, you know, forgetting what Urbanski's idea of the values crowd is, why was this important for our film? Look, this, this little movie is going to end up grossing $160 million worldwide. Wow. And that's tremendous for a specialty films. It makes it one of the most successful specialty films ever. And in the UK, when the film opened, we were getting standing ovations spontaneous at the end of the movie when, after Winston gives a big speech. Mm. And there's a radio host there called Chris Evans yep. who has a massive audience. 11 million people uh, listen to his show. That's more than 10% of the population of the, of the UK. Chris Evans was talking about these spontaneous standing ovations every day for about 10 days. And I said to, I said to Gary Oldman, I said, Gary, we've got to hop on the plane and you've got to go in studio for an hour with whatever band and other guests he's got because we'll get some more customers. And Chris Evans was thrilled. We went over there for one morning. We were back on a noon flight out of there. Wow. But, but we sold more tickets there. And there was... British patriotism in America, the values crowd conversation became a little more important because we have red states and blue states. And indeed, with a lot of really internal debate between top marketing experts at the studio, and I mean really blessed with, with some of the most talented people we could ever wish to work with, we had a lot of internal debate because we had four constituencies we were appealing to. One was award season voters. Two, uh, in terms of constituency, was the overall umbrella of customers, ticket buyers, which are different from voters. And then the other two constituencies inside of that were the red state, blue state constituencies. And we flirted with something. Could we run two different marketing campaigns, one in the red states, one in the blue states, that spoke to those potential customers about Winston, because a lot of people like to adopt Winston as their own. Yeah. And we ended up doing it successfully. We've talked about it publicly since. We didn't talk about it at the time we were doing it. And that's where the values crowd conversation led us, which is 
could we actually do two different campaigns, or three if you include the voter campaign, but for the customers, three, and uh, two campaigns, and that, and that worked out very well. So yes, the, the curious mind is always thinking, how do we make the car fly? How do we get more customers in? How can we go right to the edge? We can't reinvent the wheel, but how can we sort of shake up a little bit of the way we've been thinking about this in the past, and, and how can we shake it up and, and just keep moving into a new into a new zone here? And that was the thrilling part of, of, of making the film, was one of them, because we were able to have those really wonderful, really brain-engaged conversations I know it sounds trivial, selling movie ticket sales, but it was, it was it's, and that's what, that's what preventing lazy brain does. Right. You know what? Um, while you were writing, uh, talking there, um, Doug, I wrote down promoting a film. Because yeah. I think a lot of people see a film comes out, it's got a big actor name, they just, oh, box office. And, I mean, it sounds pretty elaborate what you're talking through there, and it sounds like you must have some kind of marketing brain. So, I don't know, I mean... Say what you want to say, but maybe you could talk us through, um, is promoting a film, you know, a big push? Um, well, I mean, it... just, I mean the, the marketing brain is a, is a weird thing. I think that that, that that gene, if you produce theatre on Broadway and indeed in the West End, a little more so on Broadway, if you have a dormant marketing gene, it will come alive because in the theatre, the producer decides all of that stuff. Right. Uh, and over the years, a, a very good friend and client of mine was, has been... Paul Hogan, who, who everyone knows from Crocodile Dundee. Mm. Years ago, in the mid-90s, um, Paul didn't want to do any more commercials, and he was a very successful commercial spokesman. He had sold, in the years that smoking was legal, he sold Winfield cigarettes back in the 70s in Australia, and then he sold Foster's Lager in North America, and I think the UK as well. And every time Paul Hogan sold a product prior to Dundee, he, he the product became so successful, they had a they had to pull the ads because they couldn't keep the manufacturing up to the level that it was selling at. And Winfield cigarettes changed all their other brands just to Winfield. Foster's Lager eventually had to stop airing the commercials. They couldn't make it. And so he, he was very rich, and he had long stopped doing commercials. And I was on my flight to Barbados and um, reading the in-flight magazine, and I see that Subaru has announced they're coming out with a new car called the Outback. And I just can't restrain myself <laughs> from thinking, you know, holy cow, this is the Outback has got Paul Hogan's name all over. He's got to advertise this car. And it was amazing technology at a very affordable price. It had a four-wheel drive. It was within affordability. It was very well made of, of the average person. It was very well made. Subaru was really trying something new with their technology at the time. And so I knew that Paul had a rule, no more commercials. And, um, I called the, the ad agency. There were some places in Texas about six or seven times over the course of a month or two, and they had no interest in using Paul Hogan as a spokesperson. And then one day they just flipped for reasons I don't really know, and they said, we want him. We, he, he's got to be our spokesperson. And that's when I said, well, he's very, very expensive, by the way. Um, <laughs> he, 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 I called Paul Hogan up. He was filming a, a movie in the Bahamas, and I said, look, I said, I've got to – quit as your manager. I can't do it. He said, why is that? I said, because you've sworn off with great anger that you're not going to be a spokesperson. And behind your back, I've been negotiating a deal to spokesperson something. And indeed, Subaru and Engage, we made a lot of these little mini commercial storyboards that were like the bad guys chasing a good guy sort of thing. Long story short was it ran for seven years. We shot them and the commercial took Subaru from like 
like like two percent growth in the U.S. a year to like 108 percent, something unheard of in the in the automobile world. Three percent would have been considered a home run. So now it's on the cover of Ad Week and Advertising and Age and all these publications. The marketing brain doesn't stop. And by the way, that was a pretty obvious one. But it wasn't to the agency, and it wasn't to Subaru all that obvious. That's the that was the amazing thing to me. Um, mm. So when we go to a motion picture like The Darkest Hour or Darkest Hour. Uh, you're always a little bit worried about something. There have been other Churchill movies that didn't sell any tickets. One with Michael Gambon in the past year and a half. Another one with Brian Cox past year or so. Churchill alone was not enough. I don't know if those films were good or bad. I didn't watch them. But we knew we had to make a good film. And we knew that by having Gary, we had one of the greatest actors of his generation who could have had the role. We also knew that he was he was internationally known as a, as a film star. He helped sell tickets. But none of that is enough because winning prizes and selling tickets is not like winning a magazine coupon prize where they knock on your door and say, you've won a million dollars. It doesn't work like that at all. You don't win anything. You don't win the presidency, by the way, that way. you got to go and you got to touch the flesh. you got to think who your customers are. And everybody out there wants your customers. There's an interesting fact about motion pictures, and you may not may not know this. Very few people know this. The amount of customers who will buy tickets to the movies essentially doesn't change. So this is really an interesting fact because let's say that attendance is on the decline. In America, the decline is very slight, like 0.002%. But it means that there's a finite pie in any given weekend. We know from years of research about how many customers will be attending a movie theater. And so it's not that if a big movie Star Wars comes out, you say, well, that's for kids and that's a different audience. That's not the Darkest Hour audience. The shocking thing is the pie, in fact, it's one of the few things in life where this is true, where the pie is finite. Mm. And you can't expand it by offering different shelf brands and products. So you're always you're going into a product into the world of selling tickets to a movie aware of this unsettling fact and moreover we've got a movie about a 65 year old white guy and the movie i think has no windows in it it's all in the basement and there's smoking there's a lot of smoke in it mm. and it's, it's it's the opposite of what you think oh brother who's this going who is anyone going to be interested um and you don't know nobody's nostradamus so you can't predict that but what you what you can do is really leave the lazy brain at home and figure, okay, now how are we going to do it? And, I, and in this case, we did, we did it very successfully, but it was a lot of really intelligent people thinking really hard. When you see a poster in the UK or whatever marketing you would see there, I assure you, it was gone through. It was discussed. It was looked at. It was selected from many, many other choices. Movie trailers are focus grouped nowadays, which can be a good and bad thing. But we... we, we get a lot of useful data and then you, then you take all this data and then you still go with your gut by the way mm. <laughs> you still ultimately have to do that okay so again i'm writing a lot of notes here and trying to pick oh. out because i think sometimes really successful smart people um they don't really know how successful and smart they are uh, and i like so one thing that struck me was your persistence uh, with the Paul Hogan scenario, um, okay. you know, you just kept at that. You you sound very clear on the goals and outcomes that you want, even if other people aren't clear or um, don't um, necessarily um, buy into what you're doing, like, again, with Paul Hogan. By the way, I remember those 
Foster's adverts so well. Is it um, amazing? Is it amazing? Everybody huge remembers here. those. Huge. Everybody. It almost doesn't matter what generation you yeah. are. The impact of those things. There's 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 a few people in the planet whose faces are recognizable wherever you go. Mm. Um, and whenever I've traveled with Paul, uh, the places like Japan and other places, he's he's just got people recognize him wherever he goes. It's just yeah. amazing. Oldman, no one recognizes. They recognize me more than they recognize Gary Oldman. That's God's truth. Wow. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna. That's all because of the social network. Because Gary and I will get on a plane, and somebody will fly to say, "Oh, Mr. Baskin, I loved you in the social network." And I say, "Well, what about him?" And they say, oh, "Who's that?" <laughs> and it's a, we checked into the Dorchester once, Gary and I, right after the movie came out. Oh, Mr. Baskin, we loved you in the social network. And you know, Gary was trailing behind me. I think. Schlepping the luggage like a Sherpa. They had change for the taxi. It was like the weirdest thing. So that movie made a big impact. And weird, weird, weird. I'm not an actor, but the movie made a big impact. Sure. Okay, right. So can we switch a bit? Because you've referenced Gary a lot. And I know that... Um, uh, when I say I know, I believe to I don't have to. I don't have to do that. I just use that as examples. Sure. Yeah, yeah, no. Okay. So um, you're in business with Gary, is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, do you mind talking about what the business is and what you do with him? And then also maybe just talk about your relationship with him. Go down whatever rabbit hole you oh, want, Doug. Yeah. Um, it, it, uh, it, the, the thing with, with Gary is this. He and I have been in business for 30 years. Uh, I, I, I grew very bored of the Broadway theatre and of the London theatre. This is the late 80s. Mm. I got bored with it. And also the, the amount of risk versus reward was shifting. Things were very much more expensive to do. I had presented a lot of plays in the West End and on Broadway that had legendary stars in them. And the idea of legendary stars, they were dying out. I mean, they, 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 we don't really have legendary stars anymore, but people like Rex Harrison or Peter O'Toole or Yusidoff uh, or Jack Lemmon, these are people who worked for me over these, Chuck Heston. Um, legendary stars were, were sort of fading fast and I was presenting them in really wonderful productions and we making a lot of money and selling a lot of tickets and doing great plays and expert productions of them, very high end. But I was bored with the theater. I didn't like the new equation economically, the new equation of how you got customers, the new equation of how much you had to charge for tickets. I did not like it. I felt it was going to go the direction that opera was going at that time, which was that you were going to have corporate sponsorships that dictated everything. Ford Motors presents AIDA. You know, you're going to have uh, American Airlines presents fill the blank, Toronto. And we saw a lot of this. We saw concert halls being renamed for Citibank. Are you going to the Citibank? Are you going to the Citibank Theater next weekend? And we have this all across America now. And I think you have some of this in the UK, similar stuff going on. It's orange. One year, everything is orange. Mm. And the next year, everything is uh, another name. The, 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 the BAFTAs were the orange BAFTAs for a while. Uh, so sponsorship became a big part of it. The other thing that happened in the Broadway theater was we would have one of us or two of us would be the producers. Suddenly, it became so burdensome. You see these names, and it would be 10 producers, and then 12 producers, and then 20 producers, because everybody who put up $2 wanted their name on it to be called a producer. So that was shifting. I came out to, and I was, and this was the, this was the final thing. I was booked on Pan Am Flight 103, the one that uh, exploded over Lockerbie. And I had taken that plane many, many, many times, uh, because it was the sort of last flight out of London, and you could still be at home in bed in New York. Uh, by bedtime. Uh, 
I changed my plans for a very stupid reason. I had, I had a play at the Haymarket. I had two plays on. I had Dustin Hoffman at the Merchant of Venice at the Phoenix Theater, and I had Vanessa Redgrave at the Haymarket in, uh, in Orpheus Descending, Tennessee Williams' play. And I changed my flight plans by, instead of going to New York, I took a British Airways flight back to Los Angeles and went to New York the following day. And, of course, learned when I arrived that, that 103 had gone down. So it was, that was a sort of other thing that said, you know, I don't want it to be flying every week. As it turns out, I fly every week. But I said, I, I don't want to be in London doing theater. I'm going to do movies. I took a couple of months off. My wife and I went to Claudette Colbert's house in Barbados. I said, I'm going to open a little hotel in Barbados. That's all I want to do. I want to open a hotel. If you're a producer, a hotel is the ultimate production that you want to be in charge of. Uh, if you're a control freak producer, that's, that's the ultimate. And so it was walking around on the beach down there for a few months. I said, you know, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to go to Hollywood. I'm going to transition and become a motion picture producer and a talent manager. And she said, well, who are you going to work with? And I said, I think Gary Oldman is the best actor in the world. And um, I think that's who I'm going to work with. And now he and I had met each other and instantly liked each other a few years earlier. But he was off in whatever was happening in his life. It wasn't a lot of good stuff. He had had this weird marriage with Uma Thurman and all. And I, I got back from Barbados. This is a true story. And I called Gary Oldman's phone number and I said, and, and, and all the phone numbers had been disconnected. So I said to my wife, I'm just going to call some hotels. And the very first hotel I dialed was the Four Seasons here in Los Angeles. And I said to the operator, uh, Gary Oldman, please. And she said, one moment. And it was like, wow, this is the first call I made. And the next voice I heard on the phone was, hello? I said, Gary, it's Doug. And he said, Doug, he said, where are you? He said, where have you been? He said, I've been looking for you for the past year. I said, I checked out. I went to Barbados. I was, I was rethinking things. He said, we have to talk. I said, I know, we got to talk. And a half an hour later, we were in front of each other, and we were in business together, and we've never, ever, 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 ever stopped. And um, it's been a great relationship. He's not a settler, by the way, and he doesn't have lazy brain. I think that's – and, yeah. and he also has the best sense of humor of anybody. I think those three things can really bind you deeply. And, and what is the business that you do together, you and Gary? Well uh, – the first thing that, that I did was I, I, I had this old-fashioned view about what a talent manager was. So he was a client. We managed, I managed, I still managed his career. And at that time, I was building a management company. We eventually had eight managers and many clients. I eventually hated them and got rid of all of them. I wanted to be in show business in the world where if you work only with people whose company you adore, people whose company you love. I want to work with nice people. I want to work with nice people with a great sense of humor. I want to work with people who are not settlers. And Gary, like I, subscribed to something else, which was this old-fashioned, ruinous idea, well, business is business and friendship is friendship and don't mix the two, keep them separate. Both of us subscribed to that was like – insane. Mm. Of course you want your business and your friendship to be connected. You want to go on holiday with your business partner and your dearest friend. You want to be doing business together. You want to be co-conspirators on this journey together. Who better to do it with than somebody who's like a brother and who you're also business with. That's who you trust. That's who you love. That's who you have the same goals with. So we began and the, the first movie that we put him in was Dracula and we went on from there to the point that Gary decided he wanted to write and direct and, and then know by mouth and all that. So the business went from being a talent manager, which is a really – it can be what you make it. It's either a job of great, great responsibility – in Gary's case, he doesn't hire his agents and lawyers or fire them. That was my responsibility. In Gary's case, 
it was to keep to keep a clear idea about the goals of the of the career. And then we became production partners. We've sold television series, et cetera, and all that. But and it accumulates when we do the Churchill film, a film that Gary did not want to do for almost three years. He refused to even discuss playing Winston Churchill. And um, but likewise it was with George Smiley as well, another role Gary did not want to play. Mm. So if you're the manager and if the manager is sort of a defect, has the defective gene as a producer, you're thinking, how do I produce a career? Act one, act two, act three of the career. And at some point on there, Oscar is going to be in the, on the list. Oscar has to be on that list as part of act three. Mm. So, again, so much stuff I can pick out. You were, um, were you involved in the persistence of... Um, encouraging Gary to do The Darkest Hour or did you just sit patiently knowing that he might come round? Because it sounds like you can get what you want and if you persist, you're going to get what you want and no-one else has a choice. Well, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a really fine line. Uh, with somebody who's a thoroughbred like Gary Oldman, you have to be initially respectful and continually respectful of what's in their head why they don't want to do something or why they feel this way about something. You, you, if, you, if you shut down a respect for their position, you're not going to get any place. Mm. So, and you can't manipulate. He's a very smart person. You can't manipulate somebody. And, and plus, you wouldn't feel good about yourself if you did. But my goal was that Gary should play Churchill. And my goal was that Gary should win an Oscar before he was 60. All of this is accomplished, by the way. Mm. <laughs> and my goal was to do that. I had no idea... If you gave me sodium pentanol, I've said this to Gary, I had no idea he would ultimately play Churchill. I knew he could, and once I played a little game with myself, who would I cast as Churchill? I could only ever come up with one name. By the way, we had developed a Churchill script for him for three years. So we were already – I already had this fixation that he was going to play Churchill. I've also over the years had a fixation that he would play uh, Richard Nixon and Liberace. I mean these weird things enter your head. But um, – so I did not know who would ultimately do it, but we had a lot of serious conversations about it. And it took this. It took trying to get inside his head and learn what it was that stood in the way. And it was a number of things, fear being the biggest one. And also he did not want to look like – he didn't want to look like Gary Oldman. He wanted to look in the mirror and see Winston. Mm. And Gary looks more like uh, like Stan Laurel, as everybody knows, <laughs> than he does Winston Churchill. And so so it, that was a big part of it. And it wasn't so much a case of talking him into it as it was of to address the concerns and keep presenting him with the facts. And then you always wonder – and I'm not saying anything out of school because Gary's talked about this in interviews – you wonder if that tiny little voice inside an actor that I call the voice of self-loathing, if that voice is also having too loud an audience. Mm. And I think there was a little bit of a time when that, that voice had too loud of an audience with Gary, but he ultimately said yes. And um, there it is. That's, he kept saying during production, am I any good in this? And it's the weirdest thing. You're standing on the set and you're watching this magnificent work being done and the person says to you, am I any good in this? And, and they're magnificent. Gary's gift, we talked about confidence earlier. Gary's gift is not necessarily confidence. His gift is concentration. How I wish I had it. Because if, oh, if you have concentration, boy, if you can, I think that's the thing, putting confidence and concentration together, that's why we've done good things. The gift of concentration 
It's why he's a good friend, why he's a good father. It's why he's a great actor. It's why he's a good writer. You have this level of concentration. It doesn't matter if there's an earthquake going on. You just keep acting away. By the way, we were, we were shooting a movie on the epicenter of the Northridge earthquake when it happened. I've seen this. Gary's gift of concentration just keeps going. He's in character until they say cut, and then he's telling a joke. Yeah. You know, um, Doug, this... I say this to people all the time. I had a conversation with someone today. I posted on LinkedIn a couple of days ago, just after Avicii's passing, um, who was only 28 years old, and I just said, yeah. we're, I said, we're all struggling. You know, you think everyone else has got it made. Uh, they haven't. The people you look up to, who you think have got it made, they haven't. They're going through challenges like all of us. The people we pedestalise in our lives that we assume you know, are, are graceful and confident and calm. They're all worrying and having challenges and self-doubt as well. And to hear you, which is going to be literally uh, listen to millions of people sometime <laughs> when this comes out, say that even Gary Oldman has those doubts, um, that's a great gift to give to everyone, to understand that we're all the same and we all have the same doubts and fears. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, 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 has, he certainly, he's talked about his, his, his doubts and his lack of confidence at the, the game. But, you know, this is when you end up working with people. And, and wouldn't it be a, a terrible thing, let's say Gary and I have this little business and we've been doing our little business happily for years, successfully for years, Um if there was a duplication of thought process, we would both be irrelevant to the other. Mm -hmm. And so there's no duplication of, of certain thought processes. Gary's insecurities are what I help him overcome from time to time. Certainly his wife, his current his wife, Giselle, helps him overcome that. And that's, that's part of what we do. And I think also... Uh, the, the amount of confidence I have in show business is as a result of, of, of Gary in, in certain ways also because when you have a solid friendship and when you've got loyalty, if you have loyalty, solid friendship and this key word I'm going to use, which is competence, competence it's so rare to find anyone who's barely competent at anything anymore. I think if you have those things you're really lucky, lucky lucky at your work Sure. Uh, and, you know, Gary's never uh, stepped in and said to me, oh, I wish you wouldn't also be a public figure or I wish you wouldn't act or I wish you wouldn't be on radio or whatever those things are. He's like, go to it. Just you know, keep doing the things that you like to do. Keep doing the things that make you happy. Keep doing things that make you money. Mm. And um, is your experience with, say, um, other talented people like Paul, um, Paul Hogan, um, oh. did you find that they had big strengths and big weaknesses? Did they have, you know... Huge talents, but also, you know, maybe people, people have different levels of talent. I, I tell you two people who impressed me that who impressed the hell out of me, who I'm lucky to have in my orbit. One is Sir Paul Smith, who we had dinner with last week. He was visiting Los Angeles, and we've known him for several years. Yeah, and I like him. He's a nice man, he's a funny man, he's a talented man, he's a hard working man. But if you said to me what sets Paul Smith apart, it wouldn't be, uh, any of the obvious things that, that one thinks of. Why is Paul Smith successful? What has he tapped into that a certain sort of man responds to? I've watched Paul Smith at work, and he has a quality I've only seen in one other person. And I said this to him at dinner the other night. I've watched Paul make a hundred decisions in a minute for hours, and he makes these decisions with certainty. Yes, no, go with that. Yes, no, I like that. No, not that one. Yeah, go, yeah, no, that one. No, yeah, I like that better. Go over here. I mean, 
and, and it's certain. There's no waffling around, gee, I don't know. Let me think about that. I need to sleep on that. Bring that one up to me in an hour. Let's have another look. None of that. None of that. Just certainty. And when Paul repeated the story back to me later that night, he said, I'll take on board what you said about my confidence. I said, I did not use the word confidence, Paul. I used the word certainty, which is like a, like a ratchet above confidence. It's just like it's all other realm. And when you see somebody who's highly functioning, doing many, many things, fit, energetic, passionate about what they do, loving what they do, knowledgeable about what they do, if you say to Sir Paul Smith, what, how does the store on Melrose in Los Angeles do? In one year, he'll say, well, our jeans sales was up 28% last month. And I happened to say this sentence to him the other night. How's the store doing? And he said, it's all men's suits. Men's suits are up 30% this year. Now, what's fascinating about that is this is a man with hundreds of stores around the world. But he'll tell you how many pairs of blue jeans or socks are being sold in every one of them at any given time. That's, that's so damn impressive to me. I mean, we can do maybe say, tell you what where our box office is strong or not. The other person I've seen who, who functions at a high level like that um, I, I would say that I've seen David Fincher function at a, at a, a very high, who's a film director. I've, I've seen David function at a level where his decisions were confident and certain, and they added another layer of confidence because he was confident in his collaboration with others. I'll give you an example. David has a very, very good film editor. So David is famous for doing many takes of a shot. Let's say he does 20 takes of a shot. I've heard higher numbers, but let's say it's 20. David will circle his top favorite 10. And the editor, when he's editing a movie, will look at the top 10 takes of a certain shot. And typically the director will come in and look at them with the editor. And he'll say, circle number five, number eight I like. Let's look at number three again. What Fincher does is he says, you know, I like number five. I like number eight. Oh, hell, you look at it and you put what you think is best. And I thought, wow, for a guy who's known as a very specific control freak, for a guy who has enormous confidence and certainty about what he's doing, he's now letting a part of that go to another one of his collaborators because he wants that collaborator to see on his behalf something that he may have missed Mm. And I thought, wow, that's that he's got this down to a real talent about how to be even better than he knows himself to be. I love that. I've I've written so many things here. This is gonna be the longest <laughs> this is gonna be the longest <laughs> retrospective intro I ever do um, <laughs> for a podcast. So I've got about three more questions. And then a, 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 a just quick fire. Are you okay for maybe another ten minutes, Doug? I am yours. I'm yours. Okay. I, 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 I have not, as you can tell, I've not done a radio broadcast in at least two and a half years. So as you can tell, I think you're fantastic. So, <laughs> and I'm honoured to be the first in two and a half years. Um, so I like I've watched I think every one of the films that you've been involved in, um, and I've got a list of a lot of them in front of me. And I'm trying to well, think. Well, the good news for me on that point is we do not have to give any money back. Right. Whatever you paid, you're stuck with us keeping. Okay, great. Uh, and, and by the way, I'm a huge Nine Inch Nails fan, and I know that Trent Reznor was involved in the uh, social network, wasn't he, in the soundtrack? Yeah, and if you want to do yourself a treat, if you ever really, you know, if you really want to get in the tall grass, 
that movie is already, you know, uh, eight years old or seven yeah. years old. But if you ever get the DVD, the Blu-ray with the extras, and there's the, the, the extras, eight hours of extras on that movie, like much longer than the movie. But the whole section involving Trent and the scoring and David it is just so damn interesting. It's just very interesting to those of us who like stuff like that. It was very, very interesting. Right, well, um, I, I love stuff like that, so I've, yeah. made, I've made notes again on that, so I'll, I'll be grabbing that. Okay, so I'm trying to think. This seems to be, and, and again, take me where you want to go, Doug, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I feel like there's a grit, uh, a grime, a darkness uh, as a, a concurring theme in a lot of the films you've been involved in. So um, am I way off the mark? And if there is, is that coincidence or is that a type of film you like to be in? Uh, there's a lot of silence, I think, in a lot of your films. You know, they're not waffled with loads of dialogue. Um, yeah, so that's my take and I'd love you to correct me or guide well, I me. Tell you, I could tell you a couple of examples. Let's, let's just start with No My Mouth for a second which is going to probably be re-released in the UK next year again. Nobody, we've not announced that to a living soul, but we're working on a deal with the British Film Institute and others. Uh, it, the, the film always makes the list of best British films of all time. Mm. The, the film always ends up on these lists, and we're really proud of it. And the film is sort of um, a masterpiece on many levels, but especially it's a masterpiece of what I call miserabilism. Because it's really yeah. miserable. It's really miserable, the film. But the, 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 the film is real, and it's passionate, and it's a point of view that is determined. And it's obviously a first-class piece of, of art. When we did the film, it was really out of Gary's need to, to say something. Now, we've looked at the film since. The film was shot in 1996-ish. And if you look at the film today, it's... Uh, it's a it's it's a period piece, a perfect period piece. There's not one cell phone in it. There's not one computer in it. There's it's pre 9/11. So much of the world was about to change after 97, 98 that the world wouldn't even recognize itself. So when you watch the thing, it looks like a period piece, even though of its day, it's a perfect period piece by the way, of its day, like a perfect historical representation of a certain class of people. What's interesting about the class of people depicted in the film? is that here we are, 2000, you know, 2018, and the world has not changed for these people at all. The world has not changed. The promises of government have not fulfilled what it promised to those people. If you drive through some of those neighborhoods in London, yes, some of them have changed, but many of them have not. Um, the cycles just go on and on. It's a, it's a pretty dark film, but, but it's, it sets out to be a very honest film. And, and obviously we're very proud of it. So then if you take, let's say, a film that we did soon after that, a film called The Contender, mm. which is a, I don't know if you've seen that one or yeah, not, but yeah. Garrett plays this, Shelley Runyon, the senator. The writer of that, Rod Lurie, uh, gave it to me to read, and I read it on a, a flight to New York one night, and I loved the script. And I called Gary Oldman up, he was in LA, and I read him the whole script on the telephone. And he said, oh, that's fun. He said, but there's nothing for me. I said, what do you mean there's nothing for you? There's a great role in it. The thing I liked about The, the Contender was it was an old-fashioned pot-boiler melodrama in the tradition of Lillian Hellman, but you could read into it whatever, like a Rorschach test, you could read into it what you brought to it. So you can watch Lillian Hellman's wonderful movie, The Little Foxes, and you could take it purely as a melodrama, 
which it functions terrifically as, or you can take it for all of its other larger social meetings, whatever they are, you fill in the blanks. And the contender functioned that way for me, which was why we, which was why we, uh, why we did it. After the contender, and Gary had done Air Force One, and the fifth element was done as a result of our relationship with Luke Besson. Luke was our partner on Know By Mouth. Mm-hmm. We had done Leon, the professional with Luke. Remember this, Leon is a movie shot in 1993. Great movie. And, right, and the funny thing about Leon is if you watch it today, the film is one of those very rare films that looks current and recent. It does not feel like a product of 25 years ago. So, so then Gary goes into the, what I call the Batman Harry Potter period. But and there were a lot of reasons for us getting on the, on the franchise bandwagon ahead of everybody else. And, and uh, some of the reasons were, were, were personal, and, but we had, we had a pretty big understanding of where the world was going. Then when uh, Take Your Taylor, Soldier Spy came up, I suppose one could say it's a dark film because George is brooding and quiet. And by the way, nobody on the planet does thinking on screen better than Gary. When the camera pushes in on those eyes and he's thinking, we're, he's not boring. We're just like glued. We can hear the gears grinding in his head. And in George Smiley, we see, I think that Gary was a little, I don't want to speak for him. I think he was intimidated by the stillness of that character because you have to play a man who blends into regular people. He's the, one of the smartest men in England, and yet he has no charisma. How do you have, how do you play a guy who has no charisma? at all and make it interesting in a motion picture. It's a really hard task to do. Alan Guinness did it well, but those are pretty big shoes to fill. So um, we ended up doing I don't know that I've addressed your question about the brooding nature um, of I films. Don't, I don't think you need to. I just uh-huh. think, I don't think you need to answer it per se. I just, I like your description of talking through it. So... Um, and I think one of the things about the Churchill film that attracted us to it was attracted me to developing it. We see once you have this idea, we did a Beethoven movie, it's a little bit dark and brooding, so not a really good film. Um, once you settle down to the idea in the Churchill movie that we're not going to do a biopic, we're going to do four weeks, that gives you enormous freedom to bring up the dramatic nuances that were going on behind the scenes. And we had no idea Chris was making Dunkirk at the time, by the way. We didn't know any, Chris didn't know we were making our movie, we didn't know he was making his, and neither of us knew about each other's scripts, that's true. But when we became aware of each other, we still had no idea until we all saw the movies, how well they went together. And in Darkest Hour, we were able to show a dynamic between Chamberlain and Halifax and Winston. We can't show it like in The Crown for like a whole hour, we have, we have like four minutes where we have to establish stuff. But it was able to give us a lot of the human dynamic that made us understand what this great man was dealing with and how really smart he was at dealing with it. So yes, there's a darkness to it, but at the end of the day, it comes out okay, I think. Sure. <laughs> oh, I think I think they're all pieces of art locked in time. Um, so, you know, like, I don't know. And this is just something I've just picked up in my head, but like, I love Radiohead, an, an English band here who are um, yeah. very creative, very innovative. As soon as it's like you think they're going to be typecast, they just go completely the other way. Um, there's a theme but no theme. That um, They're doing the art that they want to do. And, and I just, this is what I'm getting here with the work that you do. Um, you're doing art you want to do with people you want to do it in a style you want to do it, and you won't be bought or commercialised or... 
um, you know, you won't have your art. But you know, but you know something, but you know something. Here's the thing: people come to you, and everybody knows somebody who wants to get in the show business. And the hardest thing in the world is to sit down with somebody who has stars in their eyes and they want to be here in this town, <laughs> and to say to them, please. Please take the bus back to Kansas as fast as you can. Get out of it. Yeah. And you can't really say that when show business has been good to you. Mm. But the problem when you're flying at 35,000 feet in show business and you get to see the whole picture, you don't know what it holds for other people trying to get in and who have stars in their eyes. I think those of us who get to, to do what we want, when we want, how we want, first off, it looks that way. It isn't always that way. And secondly, I think we are really the luckiest, luckiest, luckiest people in the world that we don't do it out there alone. And um, it sounds kind of uh, trivial. There's nothing epic about making movies. There's nothing epic about, uh, about interacting with movie stars or Oscar campaigns. However, if you asked me, and you kind of did a minute ago about the glue of the themes of some of these movies, I will tell you that, and I mean this with my hand on my heart, the most attractive thing to me dramatically is what I call the epic clash. So what you have in, um, in let's say, in, in The Contender, the epic clash between the right and the left, between men and women. And once you understand that it's epic, then this little tiny battle of these two people takes on size. Size is really interesting. If you watch a film like The Bridge on the River Kwai, we tend to think of it as a big, showy movie. In fact, 90% of that movie is two men in a hut arguing. It's, but it's, it's Alec Guinness and Sesu Hayakawa. But it is epic what they're arguing about because the politics of the world and the politics of human interaction are all in that room. If you look at Social Network, why we're drawn to that movie is that there's an epic clash of wills going on. If you look at Tinker, there's an epic clash of right and left going on between between that that's the that's the backdrop of the whole movie, and certainly when you look at Darkest Hour, there's an epic clash going on. The clash is over here between Mr. Churchill and Mr. Hitler, and the clash is between Mr. Churchill and his own party, mm. who did not want another war. It was unthinkable. They had just come out of World War One, and Churchill uh, tried to meet Hitler in Germany in 1932 in Munich. And Hitler would not meet with him. Hitler was already afraid of Churchill. And it was the one photograph that Churchill was very thrilled never, ever was taken in retrospect because he didn't ever want that particular picture. But at the time, he wanted it. So I think that the theme of an epic clash is – I think to me it just – it compels me in all good drama more than anything. Yeah, I, um, I've just written that down on a separate piece of paper. <laughs> so, okay, so there's – um. I'm very, I don't know what I believe, but that story you said about not being on that flight that went down, um, yeah. I didn't know that about you, Doug. Um, and, um, you know, that, I just can't help but sensing there's something that's meant to be in that. And this is going to, I've never done this on a podcast before ever, and oh. I've done 300 and odd episodes, but... I have been sitting on an idea for a film, and I, 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 I am not... Uh, I, I'm just going to take this gamble. I have no idea about film um, and no experience, but I've got a friend, he's a good friend of mine, or become a good friend in the last sort of two years, and his name's Gerald Ratner. Um, and in, the, in England he's famous because he had a £2 billion 
jewellery business. He was the biggest um, retailer in Europe. Mm. He was making huge amounts of money. He, I guess he was like an older version of the Wolf of Wall Street, you know, very much in the 80s, guys. And then he did a speech at the Institute of Directors where he dissed his own jewellery. And then there was a systematic public decline uh, um, of, of his character and his brand and his business, or oh, he was a completely ruined by the media. Uh, he, he actually hired someone to save his company and they fired him. Um, and it, there was some irony because he'd fired his, his dad and his um, uncle before in the company. Mm. Um, and then he spent seven years in his pants watching Countdown, which is like some afternoon TV show here. Um, wallowing in his own misery. Then his wife said, you've got to get out of the house, otherwise we're getting divorced. She kicked him out of the house. He went and sold a load of memberships of a gym before the gym, he'd even bought the gym. Then he went to a bank because he'd got all of these direct debit, um, you know, gym memberships sold. They gave him a loan, he bought a gym. He got back in the game. Uh, he then sold the gym for four million quid. And then he set up a jewellery business again, but it was an online jewellery business came back and became a real success and now he's done about three and a half keynote speeches and for the last 20 or 30 years he's been feasting off his one massive moment. Now if you research worst mistakes in the world, there's TV shows every year where it's like what are the biggest gaffes in history? <laughs> he is always number one. Um, and he, he's Jewish and he's got this dry wit. I can't help but think there's a film in him and in that. and. Um, I just have to say it and I don't know where it leads and I don't even know why I'm saying it now, Doug. You don't even have you know, to answer if you don't want. But No, no, I'll tell you the weirdest thing about our, our business, one of the really weirdest things about our business. Um, if I have the head of a studio over to dinner, as I occasionally do, and if I say to the person, what is the thing that causes you to lose sleep every night? They will inevitably say a version of this. They will say, the thing that, that I'm most worried about is that a decision I make today will be out of sync with where the public taste is at in two years. Mm. Because we, we decided to make a movie. It's, we decided to make the Churchill movie in 2015, remember? Here we are, it's 2018. Um, it, it, from the time a decision is made. To the, so the, the hardest thing is to predict where public taste will be. And then inside of that bubble, the hardest thing for us, so we get every year, if you're an Academy voter member, we get shelves of DVDs that come in. They're called screeners. So we can watch all the movies that were made that year. Many of the movies you've heard of and most of them you've never heard of. If you put these DVDs end to end on a shelf and you could only see the side of them like a book jacket, these little thin book jackets. If you put them side to side, that is the DNA read of where the audience's minds were at two or three years ago. Right, yeah. Prior to the movies being in our hands. So one of the things that we find when we're on meetings to put together movies or television shows is that the people who ultimately part with the money in the executive spots are endlessly trying to answer the question, who is this for? Will people find this interesting? So we go in and we pitch and we pitch and we try and develop projects. 80% of the time we're shot down and we can't get to square one because we need somebody on the other side of the desk to say, wow, I see what you see and I think we know who it's for and I think we know why we're doing it. So there's a lot of things that go into, and trust me, your story you just told me sounds very, very interesting and cinematic and film-like, and so do many others that we hear. Mm, I can imagine. But yeah. it's very hard to get things, but I am going to look it up, though. Yeah, well, um, I just thinking that what you said about 
in two years. So it's likely in the UK between maybe one and five years' time there's a recession. Um, and I wonder if that's the right time. But uh, by the way, I haven't even talked to Gerald about this. Um, I just felt like a moment opened up where... <laughs> and I'm, I'm looking at you, you're persistent, you know, you're curious, and I just thought, I have to say it. And, hey, look, um, may, you know, maybe something comes of that, maybe... And, I, you know, I, I just think Gerald's such an amazing man with an amazing story. Um, before that man dies, I feel like some legacy of him has got to be left. Um, anyway, that's for another time. Um, I will look it up. Thank you very much for that. Hey, pleasure. Uh, so... Uh, I've got maybe two or three minutes left, and of course I'd love sure. to stay here all day. This is great, um, but I, I, I don't want to keep you here all day. So um, I've got three or four quick-fire questions, maybe just a, sh a short sentence for each one. The best creative mind you've ever seen? Oh, I could ask you back a question. The best creative mind I've ever personally seen or that I'm aware of? Uh, personally seen, you've experienced yourself. I think the best creative mind I've personally seen would be Gary Oldman. OK, great. Yeah. Um, best advice you've ever received? Oh, best advice I've ever received from a lawyer named Nigel Sinclair when he was a lawyer. Nigel said to me, when I was very young, and he said, whenever you're dealing with a rat and you've got him cornered, make sure you've got a, that you allow him a hole to crawl down. <laughs> and I, I tell you, that has served me so well in business. I cannot tell you because people get very dug in in their positions. Sure. And if you know that one little trick that you can leave them a little hole, you always come out where you want to. Oh, I love that. So worst advice you've ever received? Worst advice? I, 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 wouldn't, I don't think I'd be aware of it because I, I wouldn't be listening to it. My, my ears would have shut off. Perfect. That's a, that's a good I, answer. Yeah. I would, what's that? I said, that's a great answer. Yeah. yeah, I think that if it was given to me, I just missed it. <laughs> don't remember it. One thing in the world that you really feel compelled that you want to change? Oh, good Lord. You, you, you get me for a whole hour on the topic of change. I think change, by the way, is one of the worst things. Think, think of this. If, if, I've said this to journalist classes. I know you, you have to go and say why, but, but I've said this to journalist classes. If you want to get ahead in journalism and you're, you go through journalism school and if you're being interviewed for your first lucky break as a journalist, and they say to you, why? Why do you want to be a journalist? And if you ask most kids this, they'll say, well, I want to be a journalist because um, I want to tell the truth. That person will have no career because their answer they're looking for is not to tell the truth. The answer they're looking for is you have to say, I want to change the world. Because this idea of change, 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 change for change's sake. Mm. I don't know if you know something about this, but the chant, change, 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 change for change's sake, has always led to some of the worst misery and death and wars and destructions and tyrants in the history of this planet. Wow. So change has to be a very measured, slow, considered thing. And so I'm not, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a big, I didn't mean to be a little sermon about it, but I'm a big Sorry. one on being very careful about change okay. and being very wise because you end up with, you often end up with unintended consequences. Yeah, and, and I just quickly add to that. A lot of people say, oh, yeah, I want to change the world. I want to change this industry, that industry with complete naivety of how it is. A lot of people say, I want to change education. Well, they don't realise what's great about education and the school system and how hard it would be to change. So I think you make a great point. So it's, two yeah, more. 
it's, it's, that word is thrown around a lot, but I, and, and I'm all for change as much as anybody would be. But I really think it's as a as a as a universal theme. It's a, it's a it requires a, a, a speed bump. Sure. Okay. One thing that struck you when you spent time with Margaret Thatcher, just one a memorable thing. Her well, just her energy. Um, I, well, I'll give you three things: her energy, her clairvoyance. So she could tell you what was going to happen politically six or eight months before it happened. Obviously, her brain, her humor, all this. But the, my tenth thing that struck me most of all: when we met, she was she was buying a house for the day that she would eventually leave Downing Street. She hadn't lost any elections yet. She was still prime minister. But she was buying a house, and as part of that effort, she was buying a washer and dryer and curtains and things like this. And she said to me, she said, I've been out doing this and washer and dryer curtains. She said, I had no idea how expensive things had gotten. And that always stayed with me because we were dealing with what we were led to believe and what may have been a giant savant-like mind about economics. But completely out of touch, the daughter of the grocer living upstairs from her father's store was completely out of touch with what things were costing the average person. Yeah. found that fascinating. OK, so just before we started, Doug, you said that, we're, you know, we're finding out about this podcast, a disruptive entrepreneur, that word disruptive was almost like a magnet that pulled us together. So final question this is then, what does the word disruptive mean to you? Oh, disruptive is... Anything, eventually things become so corrupt. Everything is corrupt. Everything has at its heart a corrupt aspect and its stained quality. And the, what I like to call the firm, whoever the firm is, this mysterious item, this, this entity, the firm controls things and its corruption. I really, I, if you said to me, well, what do you, what's a great example of someone who's disruptive? This is what I love and what many people love about Donald Trump, by the way, the, and why, why certain factions just hate him and must destroy him. Anybody who disrupts the status quo for the better is exciting to me. And I've seen it happen in the theater. I've seen it happen in motion pictures. Lord knows it happens in the world of finance. It happens in the world every time you see an entrepreneur with a new idea and you say, wow, that was so simple. Instagram, I wish I'd thought of that. Oh my goodness, Amazon, I wish I'd thought of that. Oh my goodness. And you go down the list of things. Anything that disrupts the status quo is, is really, really exciting. And um, the status quo is probably a really dangerous Thing. Disruption is different from change, by the way, sure. because disruption can involve simply getting a Hoover out and moving the sofa, and you know you're going to clean out a lot of the junk. And that's what I, I love disruption that way. Disruption in music, it's in painting and art. Oh, it's thrilling. Doug, I just want to say this has been fantastic. I've loved every minute of it. I've taken and written loads, <laughs> loads of things, and I'm going to send this to you. Um, just Please be do. Uh, because there's so much wisdom that's come out of your uh -oh. experience and stories. Um, Doug, where should we follow you? Do you have any sort of accounts? No, I don't. I no. don't. I don't. When I was doing radio, we maintained a website. I could not do radio shows and be in the movie business at the same time. I did it. I tried it. Had a very massive audience. Um, but at the end of the day, you can't do opinion or politics 
and B in the movie business. The two cannot live together sure. because you're going to say things are going to offend somebody in our business, and I don't want to offend anybody in any business. When you're doing talk radio, as I did, you're kind of throwing red meat to certain type of customers, and that that interfered with the other side of my life. So, so I don't I don't have any websites. I'm trying to keep a low profile, actually. Okay, well, hey, look, I respect that as well. So I just want to say a final thank you. It's been fantastic. Well, call me anytime. It's great to talk to you and um, talk at you, whichever I did. But uh, call anytime. It's, it's been grand. I appreciate that. Um, have All a lovely... Right. What time is it over there, Doug? Well, now it's about 9.16, and I'm... I have one of these days where I'm going to – my day today is beginning in Beverly Hills and will end up in Palm Springs. So I have, a, I have a good day today. Okay. Well, have a lovely day, and um, hopefully we'll get to speak soon. Thank you. You take care. Have a great day. I hope we will meet one day. Thanks, Doug. Me too. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, Bye. -bye. Bye.